All right, Ephesians. We're here this morning. I, I actually forgot about this. Um, I, I don't know how I forgot about it, but um, when I was studying Ephesians, when my oldest son was younger, he decided that he wanted to mark in the Bible. So I don't know if you can tell, but there's just circles, just so many circles. So it's, you got to kind of read into it, really get after it. You can't really see it. All you see is the circles. And so this is a special book to me and obviously my son too, because we've both written in this one in particular. Um, but we're going to be beginning uh, Ephesians uh, today. Today's about context. Today's about introduction. Today's about getting to know where we're heading. Uh, it's really important. If we have no clue what we're heading into, then we don't know uh, how to read it. And so this is a, a letter or an epistle. It is a letter written from somebody to somebody, and that's important to us. There's different genres in the Bible, and if you don't understand what genre you're reading when you're reading it, then you won't know how to read it when you're reading it. And so there's a, a plethora of genres that should pop up here in just a minute on the screen. I just want to work through these with you because I do want you to have a little bit of clarity. When you're opening it up and you read Genesis, or you open up and you read First Samuel, you're actually reading a historical narrative. You're reading a, a series of events that took place. And so that's what that genre would be. So if you take that lens and you read Revelation like that, it's not going to make sense to you. And so there's a historical narrative. We have the law. We have uh, books like Leviticus that are giving us clarity on the law of God. And so when you read that, you're going to read a lot of commands around different types of laws. And so there's a type of genre as we read the scripture. There's poetry, uh, uh, things like Song of Solomon or things like... Um, the Psalms are going to have symbolic language, metaphors, pictures that we're going to see as we read. We see wisdom literature. We see that in Proverbs, Ecclesiastes that we got into a year ago. Scripture that reveals the collected wisdom of stuff. Um, and the <laughs> wisdom of generations of godly people. Uh, and so we move on. Um, and we see what's next, uh, prophecy. And so you see prophecy, apocalyptic literature are similar in some ways, but they're visions. We see things like Daniel uh, in prophecy. We see apocalyptic literature or prophecy like Jeremiah or Isaiah. We see apocalyptic literature uh, more like Daniel or more like Revelation. Uh, getting into the home stretch here, we see the Gospels. So the first four books of the New Testament are Gospels. And so those are narratives about the life of Jesus. And lastly, epistles. And so this is an epistle. And so as you read this, I want us to see it as a letter interacting with real people, as, as someone who writes to a group of people. And that's what we're going to see this morning and as we get into this series. So this isn't a letter. This is an epistle, which means we need to know a few things. We need to know who's writing the letter. We need to know who's receiving the letter. Because if we don't know who's writing the letter and we don't know who's receiving the letter, we're going to get confused on how to read this. And so this is where we're heading today, again, context. We're going to meet who wrote it. That's Paul. And we're going to meet who these people are, the church in Ephesus. So an introduction to Paul. Who is Paul? Well, let's enter, let me introduce you to him. Paul, he gives us a, a, a pretty clear um, resume of his life in... Um, Philippians. So if you flip over, if you have your Bible with you, and again, bring an app or bring your Bible. It's good to touch this book, and so bring it with you. God eats popcorn if you're not using an app. That's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Whether true or not, it's helpful for me when I'm navigating into epistles. And so in Philippians chapter 3, Paul wrote to a church in Philippi, which is another city, and in it we get a resume, and I'm going to read it a little bit about who Paul is. Philippians 3, 2 and following, it says, 
Look out for the dogs. Just kind of jumps in the deep end here. Um, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And there's context for that we won't get into for now. But he says, For we are the a circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he had pedigree. This guy Paul, that's writing to this church in Ephesus, had pedigree. He had accolades. He had his masters, and on top of that, he was revered, he was elite, and how he lived his life under the law and in submission to God. And this provoked him to, prov- to protect his convictions. He sought to protect the name of Yahweh at all costs. And so you read, if you go back to Acts chapter 8, we find this little story that takes place where Stephen, who was the first martyr, was martyred in response to Paul's approval. It says in Acts 8.1, and Saul, he changed his name, we'll get there in a minute, and Saul approved of his execution, Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And so we see that in Paul's fervor, his intensity to see the the, um, protection of Yahweh's name occur, he was trying to destroy any and everything that was confronting that. And so you fast forward to Acts chapter 9, and we read a little bit more, uh, a little bit more, that's Italian, a little bit more um, of what is happening here. Um, In Acts 9, verse 1, we read this. But Saul, still breathing threats just after 8, and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So on the way to Damascus, Paul encounters the enemy he was seeking to destroy. The very one that he was in opposition to, the one he was trying to destroy to maintain faithfulness to Yahweh encounters him. And in a moment, a moment, the risen and reigning Lord Jesus, King Jesus, who is the fulfillment of God's promises, who is the great promised one who came to rescue the world, he shows up to Paul. And this Jesus encountered grace. I'm sorry, this Jesus extended grace 
to Paul. And in this marvelous moment where this one was trying to destroy the very one who encounters him, the one who he's trying to destroy shows up and with great mercy and great kindness rescues him. In the coming years, Paul, again, uh, Saul changes his name to Paul. And he began to learn more and more deeply about the mercy and kindness and grace of his Lord, Jesus. And he spent his life seeking to make that name famous. We see it in his life. He takes missionary journeys as he heads north in Israel and he heads ending up west into Asia Minor. He spreads the fame and kindness and goodness of Jesus everywhere to the point where he said at the end of his life to one of his closest friends, Timothy, who was an elder in Ephesus. He says this in 1 Timothy 1, chapter, or verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See, Christ had shaped Paul. And that matters to us as we enter into what he's about to write to the church in Ephesus. It matters where he came from. And it matters how his heart was tenderized by the mercy and kindness and grace of his Lord. He encountered the resurrected, merciful Jesus on the road to Damascus. And his life flipped. And he experienced a level of kindness and grace he never had prior to. That's Paul. And we meet this place Ephesus. And in this place, we're going to meet a church. But first, the place, the people in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to read this. Paul, we just met him, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the saints who are in where? You got, let's try that again. You, you can do a little bit better than that. It's like the half clap. Again, you got all or nothing. Um, to the saints who are in. Thank you. There is no church. There's no church. That's what I was looking for. I can learn from the youngsters. There's no church we know more about in the New Testament than Ephesus. We learn of Ephesus in Acts. We learn of Ephesus in Ephesians. We learn of Ephesus in First and Second Timothy. We learn of Ephesus in the churches in Revelation. We learn a lot about the life cycle of the church in Ephesus. And so this movement of Jesus began again in Israel. And there's a map here of this area. And it began to spread north. and began to spread west. The best I could find. It's probably better, but whatever. You see bottom right, you see Jerusalem. It looked better on my little screen than it does here. It's pretty pixelated, but again, worse problems. We're in air conditioning. So we have Jerusalem. We have Caesarea. So that's a lot of where the movement of Jesus in the first century was happening. And then the church began to explode and they went north towards Antioch and they spread west toward Ephesus. And, and all of that Asia Minor, which is what we see here, is where the gospel penetrated in the first century. And so we see Ephesus, which is now where Turkey is, western portion of Turkey for those people who care. Ephesus, that's where we are uh, talking about here. So Paul sent out on multiple missionary journeys. He planted churches, spread the fame of Jesus. And in, uh, and in Acts 18, he left Corinth and then he heads to Ephesus. So Ephesus is a magnificent city. 
It was a port city. It was a beautiful city. And in Ephesus, there was these uh, people would take ships to and through this place called Ephesus. It was a city where people did a lot of commerce. There was a lot of trading. There was a lot of exchanges of goods happening within this city. This was a cosmopolitan city that was diverse. It was also very wealthy and affluent. That's Ephesus, a very wealthy, affluent area because it was a port city. It was also busy. There was a, a quarter million people in that city. So for that time, that was a lot of folks that were in this city. There were three trade routes that converged in this city. It was as close to ancient New York City as you can get. I mean, it was a busy city. This was affluent, it was wealthy, it was busy. The city also had a variety of gods and goddesses competing for their affections. It had a massive temple to worship the goddess Artemis or Diana as the Romans called her. And so this is the temple of Artemis still there to this day, one of the seven wonders of the world. And in Greek mythology, she was a daughter of Zeus. She was immortal and she was a hunting goddess. And her worship was the bedrock of Ephesus. So when you think Ephesus, you think the worship of Artemis. Also, as the Roman city, there was the worship of the Roman ruler Caesar. Like Artemis, he was worshipped as a godlike figure in their day. So submission to governmental rule and reign, embracing nationalism, that was a part of the package of what it looked like in that day, worshipping both Artemis and worshipping Caesar. So you have wealth, you have the worship of Artemis, you have the worship of Caesar, you have this busy context that they're in. Then you have this theater. There was a theater that sat 24,000 people in this day. It served not only for dramatic uh, performances, that's here even to this day, uh, but there was demonstrations of social, political unrest, all occurred within this place where 24,000 people sat. This is larger than a football stadium. I mean, it's wild. Four times the Pantheon in Athens. Uh, one scholar said that this is the largest building known in antiquity and was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. So you have, an, you have wealth, you have busyness, you have worship of Artemis and worship of Caesar, you have influence and power. All of these things are converging in this place called Ephesus, where this church finds itself. Real people, real place, really cared about following Jesus and had real struggles and hurdles in their day. So we know Paul, we know the city, so let's get to know this little church that got started. How did this city experience the resurrected Jesus? So Paul shows up, and there's one other person that's following Jesus in that time. His name was Apollos. And this guy had heard about John the Baptist, he'd heard about Jesus, he didn't know the full story of Jesus, but he knew enough to where he wanted to give his life to follow this guy Jesus. And Paul shows up in Acts 19, and in showing up, he says, uh, have you understood the kind of the full nature of who Jesus is? And in doing so, he ends up receiving the Spirit and ends up repenting and following Jesus. It's a marvelous moment that happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 19. And from there, the Spirit does some pretty intense work. There's miracles that take place in Ephesus that engage and cause people to turn and trust in Jesus. And so the rest of Acts 19 and Acts 20 is filled with some wild stories about Ephesus, and I want to share two that help us understand the beginning of the church. The first we meet in Acts 19, verse 13. Acts 19, verse 13, and in it we read some pretty wild folks here. I'll, I'll read it to you. Start in verse 13, and then some of the uh, itinerant Jewish exorcists 
undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so they, had, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So you have this like itinerant Jewish exorcist group. This is a, I mean, what a gig. What a daytime gig to have. Uh, and they caught wind of Paul and the work that he was doing by the Spirit. And they began to use the name of Paul, not the name of Jesus, but the name of Paul as a means to be ghostbusters in their day. But it's not the way it works. We're going to see in Ephesians 6 that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And so we get into that in Ephesians 6. I mean, it's interesting. If you come to a fight clothed and uh, you leave with clothes off, bloody and wounded, that means you lost the fight. And so they were mastered, the text says to us. They thought they could use the power of Paul without knowing the person that Paul knew. And in doing so, they ended up getting smacked in the face. So in the midst of this chaos, the name of Jesus is just put on a billboard. And the reality of his lordship and his reign and his rule as distinct to other gods is put on display in this city. It's powerful. Jesus wasn't just some idea to these people. He was experienced. He was worshipped. It's one thing to know of Jesus. There's another thing to know Jesus. We see that in Ephesus. You know, we began Sojourn 10 years ago because we wanted in this city who knows a lot about, just enough about Jesus to be dangerous. And we want this city to know Jesus. And the story continues in Ephesus in verse 18. It says, also many of those who were now believers, now this church has started in Ephesus confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's a beautiful moment where this little church in Ephesus is birthed on the back of God, moving on the back of the fame of Jesus. This was not about Paul. This was about Jesus' name being put on display. His grace and mercy and power are experienced by people, and they're responding by saying, how can I follow you? What can I do? How can I give my life to you? And all of a sudden, this burn party happens, and all of a sudden, all these books show up, and people begin to burn these, this worship of Artemis, this worship of Caesar, this worship of, uh, of, of magical arts, and they begin to give their lives to follow Jesus in this powerful way. Money is just wasted, it seems, in the eyes of man as they see the smoke arise and people begin to follow Jesus. They confessed. They turned to the one true God. They turned to the risen and resurrected Jesus. I mean, you modernize this. I don't, I don't know how to better give an example. I've given this before. But imagining people coming together at Terrell Mill and saying, you know, we begin, we've begun to see 
that our phones just aren't helpful for us. Our souls are fried. It's keeping us from following Jesus. And imagine going to Terrell Mill where hundreds of followers of Jesus decide to burn their devices and go on old school to a flip phone because they recognize that this is preventing us, I don't know, preventing us from following Jesus. I mean, it's that kind of, wow, taking place in this day. The city was shook by the wake of Jesus. And after two years of serving in this city, two years where this city has birthed and, and Paul is uh, shepherding and caring for and raising up elders within this city, it comes time for him to leave. And as he leaves, he brings the leaders of the church, the elders, together. And we see this precious moment at the back end of his time. And Ephesus, I'm giving you all of this because I want you to feel the heart of Paul for these people. And so in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17, we read this. Paul says in, uh, we read in, in Acts 20, verse 17, from, Now from Maltus he went to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with the tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. We'll pause real quick. And, and Paul, I haven't mentioned this yet, but he's actually in jail as he's writing this this letter to the church in Ephesus. But he gives his resume to them. And he says, and I was faithful to you. I, I served the Lord with humility. I taught you. I testified about repentance and faith. He said, I, I feel called in the next chapter of my life. My life and my purpose is his. And it, at the time was being poured out for you. And then you fast forward to verse 26. And he says this, therefore, in light of this testimony, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, for which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. 
It's a special, sacred moment, right? Where Paul had just spent years with this church, developing this church, seeing the gospel rooted in this church. And he's about to leave. He's about to transition and go somewhere else. And in that, he has this last moment with the leaders there, and he pleads with them. And our elders here, we, we go back to this over and over again to remember that this is a part of our call, even as an elder team here, this, this call to remember, this call to be on guard, this call to shepherd the church, that wolves will come in and distort and to keep people from following Jesus. And he says, be on alert. Remember that I warned you with tears. He says, I commit you to God. In this beautiful moment, this tender moment, and it's again here where we see the heart of Paul towards the church in Ephesus. And again, I want that to be resounding to us over and over again as we read this little letter to the church in Ephesus of the deep care that Paul had for these people in Ephesus. Back to Ephesians 1 as we close in the next few minutes. Again, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the church who is getting hounded with the temptations we just talked about. The challenges, the hurdles that would prevent them from following Jesus. And he reminds them of their identity. He reminds them of who they are. He reminds them of whose they are. And it's critical to know who we are if we're going to make it through this life and following Jesus. And Paul reminds this church in Ephesus. And he says, remember who you are. He's going to begin this first half of this little letter, the first three chapters. And in the first half, he's going to remind them of who they are. It's called orthodoxy. Who you are. And in the second half... He's going to say how to live your life faithfully to follow Jesus. He's going to talk about uh, parenting. He's going to talk about money. He's going to talk about um, lives submitted to Jesus. He's going to talk about uh, marriage and all kinds of things related, relating to one another. That's orthopraxy. So throughout there is a loving plea that Paul gives to us, recognizing that there's competing identities that the church in Ephesus is feeling. And he says, because of your identity, because of your new identity, you are not as you once were. And he gives this phrase, saints. Everybody say saints. Saints means to be set apart. And in the beginning of this letter, as he reminds them about their identity in the coming chapters, he says, you are saints. You are set apart. You are not like you once were. You are now grafted into this life of following Jesus. Man, it's so tempting to be as we once were, right? So tempting to just revert back. You ever have that feeling when you go back to your parents or where you grew up, and all of a sudden you begin to enter into tendencies that you haven't had for years? But it's just natural. You begin to do things that you did as you did in high school or maybe college. It's like, how am I going back here? We have these habits that we can very easily enter back into. I mean, the, the air we breathe, these habits that we take in can keep us from following Jesus in this journey. He says, faithful saints, reminding them you are, you are invited into more than just mediocrity. You're invited into more than just settling. You're invited into a vibrant life of following Jesus, set apart by God, who has chosen you and destined you for adoption and purchased you and sealed you. And they felt this pull to settle. Remember Ephesus, these temptations of wealth and affluence. Temptation of busyness, the temptation of the idolatry of Artemis and the, uh, the idolatry of Rome, the temptation of power and influence, pressure from within and without to settle. 
And he says, you're saints. You're set apart, sealed by Jesus. And we have to also consider the temptations we feel. We might not be Ephesus, but man, we got them. We got, we got our flesh. We got the, the things in our life that we're uh, lulled and we're tempted to just, if I just had that thing. If I just attained that thing, then I would find satisfaction. If I just got to that point in my career, if I just did that thing, then I could prove that I'm somebody. If I just had that person, person's affirmation, then I, I could feel validity and credibility in my life. And these temptations that we're drawn back to. The temptation of our world to prove yourself. The temptation of our world to have these cultural pressures. To blend in, to stay quiet, to just be regular. Or the temptations of the devil to steal and kill and destroy. To ruin your life. To just keep you away from following Jesus. And we've been bought with the blood of Jesus. We're saints. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a set-apart one by Jesus, which means there's more for you than mediocrity. There's more for me than mediocrity. There's more for me than just settling into the humdrum life of quote-unquote Christianity, that we're actually invited into a life of following Jesus. There's joyously more. And we, like them, need to recognize our our subtle temptation to settle and the invitation to actually follow Jesus. To be in the world, but not enslaved by the world. We're called to be a people holy to the Lord. I love what Ephesians was for them, and I love what Ephesians can be for us. That we're invited to remember who we are. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this in particular. But just to remind us this morning, remember who you are, that you have been mercifully pursued by Jesus. And that matters. Not by his desire for you to earn your way to him, but he has mercifully, like Paul, extended sheer grace and kindness to you. Remember that you have a calling and a destiny as adopted children of God. Regardless of your upbringing, regardless of your attachment cycle and how that affected you growing up, and you have been attached to Jesus, attached to to the Father forever. And nothing can take you from that. Your yearning to try to find acceptance and affirmation and love and care from the world will not give you what you think it will, but the gospel does. We're saints, set apart, loved, attached. You have a Lord who has conquered death in the grave, and there's nothing that can separate you from it. You've been given love that has no length or depth or height or width. You've been given the Holy Spirit that is your guarantee, just like a down payment on a house is a guarantee of that house. He has given you the Holy Spirit as a down payment if you put your trust in Jesus to to assure you that you are attached to him. Remember who you are and don't settle. Just like the saints of the church in Ephesus, the church of sojourn, you've been set apart. Not by your own work, not by your own uh, pursuit of holiness. No, 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 no. By the gospel of our Lord who has sealed you and held you, you are now set apart. So because of who you are, walk it out. Don't figure out how to be holy and then realize you're loved by God. That is not the gospel. 
The gospel is that you are his. You are destined for adoption. You're destined for, for sonship and daughtership. You're destined for his love forevermore. And now we walk it out, free by grace, seeking to follow him. Man, it's interesting, you know, the studies of COVID upon the church and discipleship, studies have shown that we've become lazy as the church. It's not me saying it. It's the studies that maybe you took, so don't get mad at me. But we have this temptation where, like, church was just a thing we watched online. It just became, like, another Netflix series that we watched when we wanted to watch it. And we're invited into more. We're invited into this opportunity to grow together. And we don't stumble into this. We need to daily remind ourselves of the fact we're set apart. We're loved. And I love Paul's tender heart towards the church in Ephesus as he is in jail for the gospel, reminding them and reminding himself, you're saint, you're loved, you're set apart. This is rich, friends, the saints of God. Throughout church history, temptation to settle is real. If we don't know who we are, we will drift. But we are made for more because we've been adopted. We're made for more because we've been purchased. We've been made for more because we're guaranteed this salvation that he has offered to us. And so as we begin this series, we're reminded of who we are. Saints, distinct, set apart, not like this world, different than this world, pursuing Jesus together. And that's the invitation for us this morning to the saints in Ephesus, and to the saints in Marietta, Georgia. We're reminded of the seal and the care and the love that our Lord Jesus Christ has for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we confess the temptation of riches, the temptation of man's empty praise, the temptation to find something that would fill the hollowness in our soul. And we repent, and we surrender, and we dare to believe that the gospel of Jesus actually meets the one part of us that nothing else can. Thank you that you came and rescued. And not just rescued to forgive, you came to rescue to adopt. To redefine who we are. Into being ones deeply loved by God. And so in my attempt, in our attempt, to prove ourselves by what we know, what we have, what others say, Lord, help us to press delete. And remember that everything that we long for is found in you. Everything that we long for is found in you. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name. Amen. And the baskets are communion elements. If you're a follower of Jesus, I'd love for you to grab one and let's take this mysterious sacrament together.
Friends, I want to remind you of the mysterious sacredness of this moment that we have together. If you've been around us enough, you know this isn't a snack. It's not a good one, if it was. It's something so much more beautiful, right? It's a declaration to us, and I just encourage you to just blow the dust off of the moment of communion and allow it to be sacred like it's designed to be for us. In some ways, the most sacred thing we do each week is this moment, remembering the body of our Lord broken and his blood shed for us and the declaration from heaven that there is nothing that can separate you from his love. No angel or demon or thing in this life or heaven or in hell. There is nothing that can separate you from his love and care and kindness and goodness. And so the night before Jesus died, he took bread and he broke it. Stared into the pupils of his disciples. This is my body broken for you. And he took that wine and he gave it. This is my blood poured out for your forgiveness. Take and remember so we take and we remember the body of Jesus broken and the blood of Jesus shed. Thanks be to God. Let's partake together.